Welcome to the latest edition of The Scrum on Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. This week, we're gathering Navigator's greatest media minds together again to discuss everything from the 2021 speech from the throne to the recent floods taking over BC. Carolyn Harvey was the executive producer of CBC's The National, and Michael Cook was the editor-in-chief of the Toronto Star. Today, I'm lucky enough to call them my colleagues. We also looked ahead to the launch of the Liberal government's third term, beginning with a historic delivery by Governor-General Mary Simon, the first Indigenous person appointed to serve in that role. Plus, what on earth is a Tim Beeb? And why is Justin Bieber under fire for performing in Saudi Arabia? All this and more awaits you in this week's episode. Welcome to The Scrum. This is Political Traction. All right, we are back with our monthly edition of the Scrum. I am very excited. Today we have Michael Cook and Car- Caroline Harvey, um, my colleagues and fancy people. Uh, Caroline, Michael, how are you both? How are we feeling? Uh, I'm I'm awarding myself a B plus, and I know Caroline has got an A double plus, and she may tell you why. <laughs> why is that, Caroline? <laughs> I'm finally leaving my house. That's where we get the uh, A double plus from. Um, where are you, are you departing to a restaurant or somewhere like fabulous? I'm actually getting on an airplane and going to Mexico. <gasps> yeah. Good for you. I will be going to Costa Rica December 30th and I cannot wait. I'm going to just tone off my phone, delete my email. Like you will not find me. I don't care if the world collapses. I will be gone from the face of the earth. So good for you. Um, so lots has happened since we last met, which was uh, many, many months ago. Uh, and I want to get into all that stuff. We're going to talk about uh, government is back in action and the throne speech, what we expect from these guys. We're going to talk about Aaron O'Toole. Uh, we want to talk about BC flooding, how you cover that, and also the implications of the military, and then some fun at the very end. Uh, so first off, uh, we had the PM do his atypical throne speech, although the interesting part is obviously Mary Simon, who's our new GG, read it. Um, you know, I think it is important to note she did do it in all three um, three languages, so Inuktitut as well as French and English, which is the first in Canadian history. Um, which was great. Uh, however, I'll be honest, I follow these things and I kind of didn't really pay attention to this thing. <laughs> I just find the throne speeches. Uh, I actually talked to a colleague who said they used to have a tracker when this government first came in and they would track how many things like announced in the throne speech or whatever were delivered on um, was when they were all into deliverology or whatever the hell the damn term was. I think only 50% of them got done. So yeah, remember the deliverology bullshit? Yeah. So I guess um, to you guys looking, just going to throw it out there. Um, what did you make? What are you making of the new Trudeau government, the return with, you know, basically the same seat count? Um, any big expectations from them? Uh, I'll go to you first, Michael. Boy, I think l- listening and watching that throne speech, it, it appears to me that this government is, again, more concerned with its social engineering than growing our economy to pay for the social uh, engineering um, it was, it was, it, it, the throne speech is probably the most over-anticipated, over-reported, over-analyzed podium event for the Ottawa Press Corps. Andrew Coyne uh, lassoed a quote from the throne speech that said, and I'm going to read it just like he did, um, the throne speech said, we will always stand up for a brighter future for all. Did, so did someone go four years to X university to a communications <laughs> course to be able to write that for politicians? And poor Mary Simon. And I know this is not a Broadway show, but the poor Governor General had to say that 
and, uh, and, and, and keep a straight face. So it's largely motherhood, largely meaningless, uh, mostly a dusting off of, of key things from the, from the previous session and, and the previous campaign and, and poor uh, uh, cable news people like the quite brilliant Evan Solomon after drone on for two hours about nothing before it even starts. Uh, the throne speech is never <laughs> binding. It's often not followed through. It's a mess. It was good to see the governor general bravely try, uh, try her French, but her delivery was very painful to watch. Um, and I hope she's gonna be a little bit more inspirational during her reign. Caroline. Car yeah, Caroline to you. And I think that's an important point. I think they mentioned, this is a conservative talking point, but I do think it's relevant given what's going on. They mentioned inflation once. And there seems to be that focus on the social engineering as much as it is relevant. And I'm just curious to you, Caroline, um, putting on your editor hat, do you agree with Michael? Do you think it's overreported? Like, is this, well, why should we pay attention to this? It's interesting. I was going to say that I disagree with them. Not that I think it's overreported. <laughs> Great. Disagree. I love and it. We're going to fight today. No, it's, it's not that I disagree that it's overreported. Of course, it was taken live on every news network, but let's be clear. It was a historic event. Um, Mary Simon was the star of the show, but I actually don't think anybody has any expectations of the throne speech this time or times past. I mean, in this case, it was the third one for this government basically saying the same things they said they said the last two. But I actually don't think that newsrooms really do expect the throne speech to deliver on much. Um, I th I, so I sort of disagree with that, that in terms of, you know, nobody's leading their newscast with it. They're putting it in their headlines. I don't think they expect it to. I, I think that it's a, um, so in, in this case, I feel like it's more performative than anything else. And for me, what was interesting is that there was no olive branch for the opposition parties, really. Um, but I think what's clear from a financial perspective is that the budget is what we have to watch for. And I mean, people are now reporting they're expecting a fiscal update before Christmas. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe they're doing that when people won't be paying attention. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to know. But I, I think that they're, they are sliding through the throne speech because they know they can and that they'll start to... I hope make some more serious announcements and meaningful announcements in the, in the months ahead. Yeah, I like your word performative, uh, and I'm a little snarky about the social engineering, but it, but it is good to hear that, you know, some of those things were going to continue to intelligently increase uh, immigration, uh, and that's a red hot button in the country, as you know. And I, I hope that sometime as a nation, we can we can get together somehow and have a good, honest discussion on immigration on our immigration policies and, and where some people don't call other people names for merely asking questions uh, and, and we can get to the numbers. I think, for example, that the family reunification uh, is a humane, but, you know, perhaps we, we have more risks in bringing in too many old people and overloading our services. Uh, and we never seem to get to those questions. We have, uh, we have another thing that someone who went to X university uh, on a communications course wrote that we're going to implement a quote 10 year action plan on something called gender biased violence. Now, anything with the words action plan in it, it means it's doomed to failure. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I've written but, many an action plan release, by the way, Michael, just, you know, it's one of my favorite words. <laughs> but I, I, I lament the lack of straight talk, you know, a gen gender based violence, I think means men beating up women. And we should say so. Um, and it's hard to believe that, you know, uh, you know, last time you said this because it's 2015, it's hard to believe in 2021 that we need an action plan, but but we do. You know, uh, 50 years ago as a young 18-year-old reporter in magistrate's court, I was covering the same story, men beating up women. So it's good to know that we're still, it's not good to know we still have to do it, but it's good to know that it's on, it's on the agenda. 
uh, on this, as you, Caroline, said, yeah, I think you said it was historic uh, throne speech, uh, but the prime minister said it uh, before we had the election. It's so urgent. This is the most important election since 1945. And it, we've got to get matters done. And they've left themselves 20 days before they go off on their long winter holidays. So those things don't go together. It, it, it could make one a little cynical if, if you want it to be. Well, it certainly was, I mean, ridiculous how slow they got for all the urgency and whatever. I mean, I know like they can't, they're having a hard time staffing, right? Which is, you know, they've just put the chiefs in place now, but, uh, um, I do. Yeah. It'll be interesting. I do think all eyes will be on that fiscal statement though. I think they can't get away with, you know, I don't comment on monetary policy, which I know is actually legitimately, he's not allowed to comment on monetary policy, but the phrasing of that I think was unfortunate. I do think, and it'll be interesting to see how that push, pushes Freeland up to the forefront, right? They're just rumors released this morning as we're recording this on Wednesday. Um, she's going to have a book coming out soon, um, which is sort of a real classic play when you want to have a leadership thing. And she was out in Quebec for all the, for a bunch of announcements there. So it'll be interesting to see uh, in out West um, what she's up to. The other thing I wanted to put to you both is Aaron O'Toole and the conservatives. So people keep being like, Oh, I don't know if this government's going to last. And I'm like, well, I think it's going to last because Aaron O'Toole is doing a really good job. <laughs> or the conservatives themselves, I shouldn't just say Aaron O'Toole, are doing a really good job destate, like destabilizing themselves to the point where like they don't have an option or a choice. So we've had two real challenges to O'Toole's leadership. There's been the petition from and sort of the charge from one of the members of the party um, on the, the leadership or the executive party executive who that guy's been suspended. And there's some weird um Soviet style investigation into his emails and all that kind of shit. And then now there was Denise Batters, a senator who I would say is sort of more on the, you know, we'd say on the fringes of the party, but certainly was a big supporter of Shear and a supporter of Peter McKay, um, released her own petition with a website, which, you know, looked reasonably slick. Like people don't usually just do that on their own. Um, came out, she got kicked out, which was, I think, decisive of the leader. And he's up this week speaking. He's got thrown open his caucus doors. Um, like Trudeau did a little while ago, but do you think he survives? Do we think he makes it to the next election? Let's say it's in two years, or is this going to be a slow death? Uh, Michael. I think you said it all. I, don't, I, I wouldn't know who the <laughs> alternative is to him. I mean, in that's many ways, I mean, I think that's, that, that, that's the issue. So it's not him who. Um, well, no. And I, like I, the fu funny thing is, is you like conservatives were like, afterwards was like he's got to go like a bunch of people were all pissed about the campaign and all this kind of which is typical of us by the way Aaron O'Toole or not um but then everybody kind of looked around I think and we're like oh shit like I'd have to run a leadership like who's gonna do it and I don't want to do this again and so people just kind of it was like you know that Simpsons thing where he slowly recedes Homer recedes into the bush <laughs> it was everyone was kind of like oh, I don't know if I want to anymore um so you're not hearing any so you guys don't think there's any but do you think he so you think he stays on because there's no other challengers that's what I think. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I, yeah, I just think that there's, there, there's no one waiting in the wings. Um, on the other side, you know, there seems to be lots of interesting potential liberal candidates, but they're, but they just yeah. don't have the bench. And so I, I don't know. I, I suspect he lasts. In front of me, I, I, he, he, I mean, he's, he's got a problem criticizing the, the throne speech, I think, um, because he has to criticize it. And when all the, the, the press ball goes running over to his podium the minute the throne speech has been delivered and guess what he doesn't like it but he has a problem getting into the inflation uh, you know the inflation is is obviously because of the side effect of the pandemic uh, and and uh, and to try and 
maneuver us into an economic bounce back. And I think the Liberals have done a pretty good job. So, but he's got to exploit uh, inflation. And, I, and it could be short term, we, we just don't know. Uh, but I think it's the wrong moment to start throwing cold water um, uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on our anti, you know, for some kind of anti-inflation re recovery to get inflation under control. I mean, much of our, and just like you, Amanda, I am no, econ I've never sat through an economics lecture in my life. <laughs> But much, of our, but much of our current inflation, you remember the, the breakfast plate this week, you know, much of our current inflation, I think, comes from the way that Canada has its, um, its uh, uh, controls its various marketing boards for those key uh, foods. You know, mm. I, I don't understand why we're allowing a basic like milk uh, and the dairy farmers to dramatically raise their price, except to keep those dairy farmer votes secure. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is look at the plate, the difference, as we did this week, you know, between the price of a pint of milk in, in Toronto and a dozen eggs in Toronto and the same milk and the same eggs in the United States. So I think the government has done a good job on the pandemic, but it's, and it's not time to stop spending yet. So Mr. O'Toole's got a tricky, as we say, a cricket, a tricky wicket to play there. So asking you both, because you've led newsrooms, um, one of the criticisms of him is that he's not out there enough. Right. And, but like, I feel like that criticism of, of opposition leaders is as old as time. It's like, where is he? How come he's not out amongst, and it's just, I've been in an opposition leader's office where I started and getting the media to pay attention to them other than when they're yelling about something is incredibly difficult. So when you're looking at as a newsroom, you're covering like how do you guys how do you evaluate that and decide what is newsworthy and how to balance the coverage of of him versus the prime minister and like how does that work, Caroline? It's a good question. I mean, I th so I think two questions there. The first is that if I was Aaron O'Toole's advisors, I would probably not be telling him to be out there right now because I just don't think that his media will kick the shit out of him in his favor. <laughs> You know, from a newsroom's perspective, it's interesting because, you know, during the election, it's all about balance. It's all about you have to demonstrate that you've given everybody an appropriate amount of coverage and that everybody's getting a chance. And, they, you know, people are really deliberate about it. But once you have a government in power, it's, it's not really the case anymore. Like you, you, you want to follow the decision makers. You want to show Canadians, um, you know, the stories of the people who are in control to, to make change. And right now it's not Aaron O'Toole. So I, I think that it works against you for the obvious reason of, you know, he's just not in the spotlight as opposition leader and he's being careful. So it also, yeah. makes him, you know, so I, I think that's really, that's really the big challenge. Yeah, and and I think right. most people don't think, I mean, I think everybody thinks Trudeau's safe, at least for the next while. And, and therefore that question of um, hitting back at the government becomes less interesting, especially especially on the heels of an election. Because when you think about what you're, you know, when you think about your audience, when you're a, a newsroom leader, we've all talked about politics for the last three months. People want to talk about something else now. And I think what they want to talk about is pocketbook issues. They want to talk about things, you know, in and around inflation, but not so much the inside politics. Michael? Yeah, I, agree. I agree with that. <clears throat> I think, you know, it, it, being away creates a scarcity and, and, a, and a demand. <clears throat> and you've got to hit that at the right moment. But he has nothing to say of any real use right now, and he can't win at the moment. Uh, Carolyn's, I think, 100% right. He, he cannot win anything. So just be prudent and just stay away. And the, and, and, and the press don't like, other than the National Post, the press don't like you anyway. So stay away. 
It's, it's, it's interesting though, because like my thought would have been go do something provocative or big and get like, get attention, like start to make, make noise about something other than your internal crap, because that's all people are going to talk about. But it's interesting to hear from you guys to say like, listen, people don't want to talk about politics anymore. They've just had an election campaign. They give a shit about how much milk costs. Like you should go away and deal with like my fix your house. Like it's going to be a little while and come back. That's like probably smarter. Maybe why I'm not up there right now. Um, <laughs> All right. So this next last topic I really want to get to, and then we'll have some fun or quick fun question for you guys is um, obviously huge news. The last couple weeks um, has been with the flooding in BC, the mudslides. Um, you know, I don't even like more water has there than ever in history. Um, people have died. Um, you know, farms have washed away. And then the Canadian military comes in as they want to do with natural disasters in Canada to like ride to the rescue, <clears> fix the, fix the berm and all this kind of stuff. There's a really interesting piece in the line, which we had Jen Gerson on one of the co-founders last week, uh, who teased this, um, from Matt Gurney, just about Canada's military being deployed for this stuff, being incredibly under-resourced for it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that being the only kind of way we deal with it. And is that, you know, is that the right choice? Should we be spending more on our military or at least on disaster relief, given we're going into climate change? Like we're talking about you know, resiliency is that a key part of that? Um, and I wanted to talk to you both about that, but also how to cover this story. So first, I guess on the military piece, I know Michael, you had some thoughts there. Um, what do you make of, you know, after the year that the military have had in this country, now all of a sudden they basically have been dropped into BC to save the day with, you know, popsicle sticks and glue because we under-resourced that, <laughs> that institution. What do you make of, uh, of that kind of that take on it? Oh, I think I think she's turning to you, Michael. Oh, okay. Um, boy, I think that should we spend more on the military? No. Uh, I, I, the men and women right now in BC need to do something beyond providing Canada with the facade that we're a military power. I'm, I'm sure the few soldiers that have been parachuted in there are desperate to help and desperate to be seen to be doing something good to get some good television. PR after their abysmal year with uh, terrible leaders, uh, in, in, including the defense minister, with their sex scandals and, and the appalling behavior that was dictated by their leaders during the fall of Kabul, where, where people, actual Canadian citizens and people with Canadian documents were uh, waist deep, literally waist deep in shit at that airport as, uh, uh, as our soldiers literally and metaphorically turned their backs. So And at the same time, the French and Ukrainian soldiers are going into Kabul to get uh, our people out. So our our soldiers are are being let down by the leadership. But if Canada wants to have more disaster response capability, to use a communications phrase, if we want more disaster response capability, why should it be people who we've trained to do what the military should be doing, which is break stuff and kill people? I mean, filling soundbags for the TV cameras is a $15 an hour job. So maybe we have some kind of, you know, super Boy Scouts that we can go in and train people to do a proper disaster response capability. Why should it be soldiers? I think it's crazy. And, you know, Caroline, I, I don't know what you make of that, but I also just want to layer on how we talk about this story. Because one of the things I was even struggling with on having it today on the on the podcast is it's been around for a couple of weeks. And, you know, there's sort of the initial, this is tragic 
blah, blah, blah. But we don't, it's not really as debatable as what I call it in like the news, whatever, whenever I do my radio stuff, right? It's not, we can't really debate how tragic it is. We can talk about the after effects and it moves in the climate change postulating, are we going to do enough? Is this a catalyst? And then it's sort of like, how do we talk about it anymore? And yet you were talking about off air before we joined, it's still leading the national or leading the news in a lot of places every night. So what are those, how are those editorial choices being made in newsrooms and why, because to me, it feels like as much as this is tragic, how do you, like, why is the story still like, how do you extend that story? How do you keep telling that story and keeping it fresh? Uh, well, I think in this case, part of it is that there are still, you know, bodies that haven't been found. Yeah. There's still homes that are underwater. Like it, it hasn't come and gone. Um, so it, it remains an active story. You know, it is, it's a personal to human story. Those are the kinds of stories that resonate with people always. I think the other thing, and, you know, we've talked about this a lot at Navigator, but just our election research showing how what people care about are the things that are personal. And it's interesting because one of the liberal government and other government's challenges talking about climate change is most people don't really understand what's in those platforms because they don't directly relate to their daily lives. But when you suddenly look at all your neighbor's houses underwater, you do. And so I think that I think it's a great opportunity actually to drive conversation around what we need to do about this and beyond trying to help the people whose lives have been desperately affected. We need to we need to talk about why it's happening and what we need to do about it and whether that's whether we should buy, you know, to Matt Gurney's point, more helicopters, which probably we should, or or whether we need to be, you know, really paying serious attention to climate change. But it's on the top of the newscast because it has all the right elements, man. It has great pictures. It has heartfelt, personal stories. There's there's still lots of information coming out. I, I know they just, uh, you know, they're still identifying people. And, and it also like most disasters and most weather related disasters is they also really lay bare inequity in our society. And, and that makes it bigger than, um, it makes it bigger than just the story that's in front of you. And, and, that, and I think that's why this one's resonating and that's why this one's lasting. Yeah, well said, Caroline. It, it is, uh, uh, you, the TV people, you would know this much better than me, call it storm porn, right? It's just, it, it's so alluring. And this particular one ticks all those boxes. What I would like to see in the coverage of this is more than just a knee-jerk uh, reporter on the scene uh, statement that this is connected to climate change. It might be, it might not be, uh, I, I just don't know. I've looked at all the old black and white photos of floodings in BC over the last hundred years, and there's plenty of them, many of them worse than this. We didn't have the fancy Coca-Hala Highway 50 years ago, but those floods are not new. So is it climate change, isn't it? Or is it just a maybe? So I'd like to see some more intelligent uh, analysis of that, uh, of that topic, because as you say, I mean, it's, if it is connected to climate change, and it may well be, it's really important and it, and it ticks a huge box there and leads to many more, I think, uh, much more good and deeper reporting on that topic. Absolutely. It's interesting you say that, Michael, because I will say when I talk about, I did it on my show last week and we have a tech support people text in and people always go kind of ape shit. People went like ape shit on the dick. It's weather, but and right. And I feel like part of it is I think it's both actually. I think it is, you know, if you look at what happened with the drought and the, whatever, all of those trees and all that kind of crap gone, all of a sudden the mudslides happen, like all of that, right. It's all sort of intermixed. And then in addition, you have infrastructure, they basically like reverse engineered, like a, like a, like a farming, which is in the middle of a lake. So when the 
beam breaks it. The lake goes back to where the lake was supposed to be in the first place. So it's part of it. We fucked around with how the water worked and she decided to come right back to where she's supposed to go. Cause gravity and the world works the way the world yeah. works. No, it's true. Yeah. But we're not having like, even myself, I'm guilty of it. Like I don't have, I have 10 minutes to talk about it. Right. It's a huge story. So I don't have the time to have that nuanced conversation to say, Hey, it can be both, but maybe we should. And maybe that's part of, I think the issue with the coverage, cause you have like a real set in pissed off part of the country that's like climate change is being used as an excuse to like kill the energy sector and do all this kind of stuff as opposed to saying, Hey, like, yes, there's weather. Yes. There's stuff we messed around with. And there's also climate change. Maybe we as well, like journalists generally and whomever else need to be more sensitized or unpack that a little bit more than, than what we're seeing so far. Yeah. I think that's fair. hundred percent agreement all around. Well, <laughs> Well, but it was, it was crazy. Cause the, um, I forget what it was, but the flooding or the, the high, there was like a highway Abbott's is, I'm thinking it's Abbotsford, but I could be wrong. Um, and it was 20 years ago, same flood. Like I almost looked identical. The built one building wasn't there, but it was like the exact same thing. I was like, this is, I mean, listen, we live in Toronto. I live in Toronto. Like the, the, the DVP floods on the regular, they're finally doing all the mitigation work. There's going to be a billion dollars. But if you look at what happened in Alberta and whatever, but that thing's been flooding for ages, right? We just don't deal with stuff. And then catastrophe happens and it, it hits us all. I'd be satisfied with, I usually like things definitive black or white, but I'd be satisfied with reporting on this, this flooding and weather disaster connection to climate change. If someone said it might be connected and here are the reasons why, and it might not be. And here are the reasons why actually we don't know. I'd be happy with that, but we're so definitive attaching it to climate change that it, it, it kind of undermines the whole cl- the seriousness of what we're enduring and will endure as, as we move from climate change to <clears throat> climate crisis, which we're very close to now, if not already there. I, I do uh, go a little bit offside, perhaps, and just ask if we could just talk about uh, the Justin Bieber, the onslaught against Justin Bieber and whether he should cancel that uh, concert in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I, I think uh, social media, once again, is being grossly unfair in piling on and putting onto him uh, uh, that responsibility. Uh, because as with all of us, um, accountability and responsibility is, is an action. It, it, it's individuals. And so why a pop singer should carry more moral accountability than a prime minister? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So, so we jumping in there, it's so in, for context, um, there's an F1 race taking place. Um, ne- well, the beginning of December, uh, Justin Bieber has a concert there December 5th and he's for whatever reason, our beloved Biebs, um, has being <laughs> just ch- chosen to be the poster boy for why aren't you canceling this? And the widow of Jamal Khashoggi has, um, murdered journalist, uh, has appealed to him directly to cancel his concert. And to be clear, like I'm a massive F1 fan and they just had one in, I think the last one was in whatever last week was Oman or Bahrain. I forget. Anyway, whatever it was, like, it's not exactly a bastion of human rights and no one was being like, Hey, you guys shouldn't like Lewis Hamilton had a, had a rainbow flag on his helmet. Um, he'll be doing that again this weekend. Like there's lots of political statements that happen FF1, but yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's Justin Bieber, that's going to be the hallmark of you know, changing the tide on human rights in Saudi Arabia. But I mean, Caroline, I don't know what you make of this one. And I'll say I'm, I'm, I'm a massive F1 fan now. So I'm a bit, and you're a Bieber fan, Amanda, come on. I don't actually, I, you know what? I went to his concert and he was quite good. Although I feel like he was totally out of his mind stone. Um, but 
But you don't think that he should be in charge of restoring the reputation of a regime as he's been asked in an open letter? I do not. What do you think, Caroline? (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm with you. I I mean, listen, I I think that when people have an opportunity to have a podium, they should take advantage of it. So I'm, you know, generally in favor of um, people who can, you know, generate attention to a cause they care about, that they, they should do it. But the idea that Justin, Bieber, that Justin Bieber is responsible for this one, um, I, I just don't see that it's going to make any difference, unfortunately. I, I think we all need to stand up for Saudi Arabia, no question about that. But I just don't think that Justin's the guy to do it. But to your point, like, I'd rather he should go do the show, make his money, and stand on the damn stage and say, this happens here and this happens here and this is wrong. I actually think, like, not to be, it's sort of a bit of a navithos. Um, but we want to be in the room, right? Like our whole premise is we're in the room to help make change. Like we do our work for our clients, but we're also in the room to help make change. And that's how we actually affect a lot of our change that, you know, we don't talk about publicly around um, all kinds of government policy and in other places. So to me, I'm like, Justin should go there. It's already going to have huge attention. And like, you know, Biebs can, after he eats his Tim Biebs, which are supposed to be disgusting. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that collab, but I'm just Tim Hortons is garbage. Um, he can then- just- say this is like, this is shit. And I, this is disgusting and should not happen and take his millions and go away or donate it. I don't know. Like Michael, I think you should do that after our prime minister does it. Well, listen, I don't know. I mean, that's a, it's a tall order for any of them. Like you look at China, you look at any of those countries, right? It's, uh, it's tough to, they all come in talking, talking tough and then realize negotiations in the world, the way it works is, uh, it's tougher to be principled. I I don't know. It's interesting. All, all these, uh, these events that come up and they start they start conversations, you know, good or bad. Olympics is obviously one. I'm sure we'll be talking about Amanda in January. We are going to do that in January. We did so, not. We saved it for this episode because I want to. I want all your thoughts, especially because CBC is so big with the Olympics, Caroline. I, I think we could do a whole pod on how you guys handle yeah. that. Stuff. Well, how do you cover? You know, how do you cover China from right. China? But you know, with, as it relates to the F1 question, it really is like, can you use sport to create change? And is that is that sports the CBC. Boston, right? I know we're going to talk about this later or another time, but the CBC has no business bidding for the Olympics using taxpayers' money to warp the market for global and CTV. No business doing that. It's not core to Canadian. doesn't bind Canadians together coast to coast any better than anyone else can do. So M- Michael wins the, wins the award for the most interesting segues during this conversation. I know. <laughs> All right. I'm, we're going to cut it off there because listeners, if you want that debate, Next month with the scrum, Caroline and Michael are going to go head to head on whether or not the CBC should bid on the I love this. I can't wait. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on again. I've missed your faces and um, your perspectives. And uh, we are looking forward to continuing this every month. So have a wonderful, wonderful day, friends. And have a great week. Thank you. And bon voyage, Caroline. Bon voyage. Yes. Bon voyage. Thanks. See you guys soon. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stake public affairs firm. Our show is produced by John Gardner, Kimberly Drapak, Matthew Barnes, and Thomas Ashcroft. A very special thank you goes out this week's guests, Carolyn Harvey and Michael Cook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate us online wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Traction Polly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next Friday.